guys have a seat. Thank you guys. Appreciate it. Well, we're glad you're here. If you are here for uh, the first time again, I want to reiterate, uh, you caught us on an, on an odd Sunday. We've got over half our church out at All Church Retreat at New Life Ranch in Tulsa. Uh, so we've got Chris and Lisa, are guest worship leading for us, since Dawn is out there, and uh, it was a great weekend. We really hope that if you're part of our community, you would really consider that next year. It was beyond all expectation. Very, very cool. Amazing. And so uh, excited that they're out there doing that. I drove back last night. I'm a little on the tired side. At like midnight, we had a flat tire on I-44, um, which is awesome. And so, uh, so we were doing all that, got home kind of late. But I told you earlier during our announcements that we're taking a little break from our life um, to call to, or our Call to Life series because we thought that while we were out there this weekend, we we're exploring this theme of, of life together, and we took Acts 2.42, and we've kind of unpacked it a little bit and said, what does church and community and relational living really look like, and what are the big fears and dilemmas that we have that are wrapped up in really giving our lives to other people? And so we thought that it would be a great idea just to, to put pause on our current teaching series and unpack that here for a few moments as well this morning. So that in both places, our community was looking at the same text and kind of exploring some of those things. So we explored it in several different ways this weekend, but I'm going to kind of roll most of it into one this morning. And some of the stuff we've talked about here before, back in 2014, we journeyed through the book of Acts together, and we really did explore a lot about what community looks like. But we're going to kind of unpack it with a couple of different dilemmas, questions, and struggles this morning. And so we're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 2, for those of you that are just kind of want to know where we're going to be and what that that kind of looks like, um, so that we can kind of measure those two things up, where our community was on the retreat and where we are um, here this morning. So, you know, it's really interesting, right, because church for a lot of us, uh, and we, we've talked about this at length before, but church for a lot of us means very different things. Uh, it depends on how you grew up and where you kind of were raised and what that might look like. For some of us, it was a very involved thing. You were at church on Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, like anytime the doors were open. Uh, you were there because you were supposed to be, your family went. Some of you, church was in just something you did on Sundays or on maybe even just on holidays, um, but we all have different understandings of church and of community um, when we kind of really unpack it. And that makes being a part of a community really interesting because we all have very different definitions of what that means, of what relational community looks like. But one thing we can't get around is when we read the Bible, both Old and New Testament, that community is a vital part of God's sort of economy uh, for, for believers, for people that he is leading, that put their trust in him. Community is, is a vital part of that. In other words, the Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. Nowhere in scripture do we see this picture that we are called to just sort of engage and take on this world and follow Christ on our own. It is always driven by community. And it actually goes all the way through God's redemptive plan as he kind of gathers the Israelites together and the community that they were and how he taught, instructed, and led them. Um, this community piece is vital. And so how we understand community is really important. And there's probably no better picture of it than that initial picture of when the church is kind of born and given life in Acts chapter 2 because we get a glimpse, a real true glimpse into what community is, is called to be and the challenges uh, that it has. But most of us have never really paid attention to sort of how church works. We've never looked behind the scenes too much. Uh, we just sort of go when it's there and do the things that we should do, but we don't pay attention to really the things that we're really called deeply to be a part of. We do that with a lot of things in our life, actually. We don't pay attention to a lot of the details. We just sort of do them because, well, that's what's there and that's what we've always done. Um, I'm like that with a lot of things. I'm like that with aviation. Um, I get on a plane. I literally have no idea 
um, how it works, physics and all those kind of things. I was flying out of Lubbock, um, Texas years ago, and Lubbock doesn't have a giant airport. It's got one of those like sort of airports. It's like the small planes. And, uh, and, and, on, and it was a little American Airlines jet, and it's one of those that has one row of seats on one side and two on the other. It's like one of those little regional deals. And, uh, and so we were getting ready to take off. We were going to Atlanta. And so we were going through wherever, Dallas first. And the stewardess comes on. She says, you know, we've got a weight distribution problem. And so we're going to be shifting some things and some people around so that we can take off. And so I thought, oh, you know, okay. I mean, sure. I mean, I didn't ever thought that weight was a, like, I know you probably can't put too much on a plane or it won't ever get off the ground. But so she comes walking down the aisle and she goes, we're going to move some people around a little bit. She comes to me and I was sitting on the two-sided thing with my buddy. We were flying to Atlanta and she says, sir, would you mind moving to the other side? And I thought, oh yeah, well, yeah, okay, sure. You know, she's going to move some of us over. And so I get my treasures and I, I pick them up and I put them together and I start walking over the other aisle and I sit down and she looks and she goes, that should do it. And then she turns around literally turns around and walks away like that was the problem like fatty over here was gonna flip the plane when it took off i thought to myself i've got to study more on how these things function because if all that's holding us together is my fat body on one side of this thing we're in we're doomed doomed um, also, it was just mortifyingly embarrassing, right? And so my buddy laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed and laughed. And I did the walk of shame across the aisle, you know, with my stuff. And I sat out over there in a little single, solo, sad seat um, and thought, man, I'm crazy. But I think we're like that with a lot of things, right? We just sort of, we just engage them because they're there. But we don't really put a lot of thought behind the whys. And community is one of those pieces that God has built in these incredible whys, that we're not just called to do this because, well, it's what we do on Sundays and it's what we're engaged in, but there's these deep, real, relational whys that are meant to stir our soul and draw us into deep communion with people and with the Lord. And so Acts 2 is this really cool picture of that. And, and we're going to look at a few of those pieces, and this morning I'm, I want to tell you two of the real dilemmas and struggles that I think we have with it. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 2 for just a moment. And uh, we're going to look at that. We've looked at this text a couple times over the years. Uh, we're going to take it from a little different angle this morning, um, but it should be familiar, hopefully, for any of you that have been kind of coming for, for some while with us. We've, we've used this as a lot of our anchor thoughts on what it means to be the church and kind of how that unpacks. But let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into it this morning together. Lord, I do thank you for the opportunity to be here together in worship. I thank you, God, that we are the, the church, the ecclesia, the gathering of people wherever, wherever we meet so, Lord, whether we meet here, we meet on retreat, or we meet in a small group in someone's home, we are very much the church. We are the gathered body of Christ, and so, Lord, we um, worship you. So, God, we gather this morning, and we just ask that you would teach and instruct our hearts, that you would move in us, that you would draw us into your presence, that you would teach us maybe something new about even our own fears of kind of relationally giving our heart over to the community or to opening it up to other people and, and what that might actually look and feel like. Take a moment in your own heart, just as you sit here this morning, and just ask the Lord to teach you something. It doesn't have to be groundbreaking or you know, world-changing, but just ask the Lord to teach your heart. Just a simple prayer, Lord, teach my heart this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you, even if you don't know their name. We do this every week as a community. We like to be in the habit of praying for other people. We just we think that everything that unfolds on Sunday morning is not really about you or me. Um, 
And so we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. So take a moment and just, just pray. Just say, God, even if you don't know their name, Lord, I just want you to move in this person's life or heart. Maybe it's your spouse or a friend. or Just pray for them. Pray that God would move in their heart. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We ask that you would bless our folks that are driving back uh, today as they make their way back home, that you would keep them safe, Lord, that you would um, bless their families. Lord, that you would bless our time this morning as we gather and we open your word and we worship and that you would just teach and convict and instruct and, and direct our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So just as kind of a point as to where we are in history, um, you know, we are just a few weeks, days, post-Pentecost in Acts. So the church has been kind of born. God has had this sort of radical blessing on the community of believers. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 new people were added to uh, the group and the gathering of believers. But what's really unique about this situation is that as this church, beginning fledgling church, was in Jerusalem, during Pentecost, when all these people were in town uh, for the great festivals, the pilgrimage festivals, so they came from all over the place, this massive sort of group of people, um, and 3,000 people were gathered, uh, were, were brought to the name of Christ and got saved and all those kind of things. Most of those people then probably returned to their homes. So once Pentecost kind of, the festivities died down, they returned home, and most scholars believe that there were probably no more than about 500 at most believers that were left in Jerusalem, even after the 3,000 had been added to their name and they were growing, a lot of those folks returned to their own homes. Most people didn't actually live in the city of Jerusalem. They came up for festivals and feasts. So at most, maybe there were 500 believers in a city of about 100 to 200,000 people. And so there was a really small portion of people that were gathered in Jerusalem, the picture that we're going to see in Acts 2. And those groups were, they were small because the Jewish people, were, they were pretty hostile to them. They were very uh, kind of leery of these new believers, and they were sort of very cautious because they had such a deep hatred for Christ and for the sort of way of life that Jesus threatened with the religious leaders. And so there was this, just this crazy hostility. And so the believers that gathered together really did so out of necessity, uh, they got together because they needed each other. They desired to worship together, but they also shared in life together. And so it was like this, this thing where people were drawn together because maybe you were the only group of people that you knew that believed the same thing. You know, there were no generational Christians. We've talked about this before. Your great-grandmother wasn't a Christian and passed that down to your mom and she passed it down to you or whatever. Like there was no one to, nowhere to go for other direction. It was just you as a new believer, and maybe that cost you your family. And so here you are in this huddled group of people just trying to, to learn and survive and share life. And so it was a very intense, very different environment that these new believers were living in. But the picture we get in Acts 2 is actually a true glimpse into what is the first gathering of church. And the word church, as we know, right, in the Greek is the word ekklesia, which means assembly or gathering. It's not a building or a thing. Like, this is not a church. Uh, you know, we've really misused that term. This is just a building. The church is actually a gathering of people. So when we say to, we go to church or we leave church, it's actually really bad theology. So the idea is you can never really go or leave something that you're a part of. Um, but the idea, we all kind of know what it means. But really the church is the gathered people of God, the assembly. And this is what it says in Acts 2.42. It says, they're talking about the fellowship of believers, the gathering of believers. 
the church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now this is the first kind of glimpse we get into what true community, true church community looks like. We're going to see it again in Acts chapter 4. We're going to see another glimpse of a very similar glimpse. But this is the first window we get into what true kind of biblical life in Christ together looks like. And right there in the very first, we see that as they got, they spent time together, they really committed, or we're going to use the word devoted, themselves to four deep, true, real things together. Right? It says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So when you understand that, how Jesus went around doing kind of his ministry, he went around and he taught. And even at the Great Commission, he instructed the disciples to go to all the nations, to baptize and to teach people everything that he has commanded them. Teaching and learning and growing is a deep part of what it means to follow Christ. And so this new group of believers, they got together and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the words and the teaching of the disciples and of the apostles, those like Paul that had encounters with Christ and were called by him and were giving instructions to the community. Now, there wasn't a Bible as we have it in 66 books. That didn't come around until centuries later when they began to gather these letters together. So they would take a letter or they would sit at the feet of the apostles and they would teach and they would discuss and they would use those moments to grow. They devoted themselves to rehearing the words of Christ. For those that spent time with Jesus, the disciples and the apostles, those who were sent by him, would say and speak the things that Jesus had said to them. And the gathered group of believers devoted themselves to basically hearing and studying the word of God, the apostles' teaching. The first and foremost commitment of the church was to devote themselves to the teaching essentially of the word. These were the the teachings of the apostles and disciples that had directly heard these things from Christ. And so they had devoted themselves to their teaching which means that the sort of number one priority of the church or the gathered group of believers became as they were devoted to hearing the word of God. That was their thing. We want to grow. We want to hear what you have to say about how our lives should be changed by who Jesus was and who he calls us to be, right? So the number one goal of the church was not to be entertained or to have a children's program or whatever those things are. It was just to gather together and to be devoted to hearing the word of God. We want to grow in that. So they devoted themselves to the word. They devoted themselves to the teaching They devoted themselves to the fellowship. Now, there's probably no word in our church culture or lexicon that suffered more than the word fellowship, right? It's actually a Greek word koinonia, which means the shared life. But we treat the idea of fellowship as like, we have fellowship halls. Have you ever been to a church that has one? We kind of have a outside area or whatever, but you know, fellowship is sharing a few donuts or getting together and shaking some hands, or maybe the guys will go out and do a a dinner deal or whatever happens, and that becomes fellowship, right? It just becomes sort of this thing that's like we're together and we're being really nice to each other, and therefore we're hanging out. And so fellowship is this idea that as long as a church gets together and like does something then we're fellowshipping, right? And it's kind of suffered a little bit because that kind of runs the gamut of, hey, I come to church, I shake somebody's hand, I have a donut, we talk about OU football or whatever it is, uh, which is a waste of breath, by the way. We talk about tech football, it's probably a better idea. Um, and, 
and you, you know, and, and you shake hands with them, and that's fellowship, right? We're fellowshipping. But the idea of koinonia in the Bible is much different. It's the idea of this intensity of shared life. And so when it says that they devoted themselves to the, the definite article is there, to the fellowship, they're saying they devoted themselves to the sharing of life. I don't know about you, but the idea of sharing a life is really interesting to me. It's really a challenge to me. Um, because I love to share parts of my life. I'm really great at it. The parts that I want you to see, I want you to have. The parts that I want visible to the world. But we're really poor at sharing my life, the parts that I don't really want to uncover, show, or have be examined, right? It's like the perfect social media thing we talk about here a lot, right? The idea is I, I can give you glimpses to what I think you want to see and what I want to portray. And that part of my life I will share. I'll share you the, the great things my kids are doing and the great things and vacations that we go on and all those kind of things. I will share all that part of my life with you, but I won't share with you the deepest anxieties, the struggles, my marriage is falling apart, my kids are terrible, whatever, life is this, financially we're on the brink of disaster. Like, I'm hurting, I'm facing depression, I'm struggling with some of those things. I close those walls off because I'm not really sure I want to share that part of my life. And so we'll talk about that more in just a second. But the idea being is that they devoted themselves to the sharing of life. Which means it was more than just this idea of, hey, let's get together and go see the Rogers or the you know, whoever's. And you know, I haven't seen them in a while, let's go make sure that they're doing okay. It was more like they just committed themselves to just being together. So they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the koinonia, to the fellowship. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. A lot of people have gone back and forth on, well, what does that mean? Does that mean that they were celebrating communion or does that mean they were sharing food? It actually is probably both. This phrase here in the Greek actually has the definite article that gets left out. It says they devoted themselves to the breaking of, and then we leave out, in Greek it's there, it's called the, 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 the definite article is the loaf, the bread. So they devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread, which means most likely they committed to this sort of thing of doing communion every time they gathered. It's an important part of their worship life. Later on in verse 46, you'll see that they ate together in each other's homes. They broke bread. That probably means much more of a, we shared meals together. So you've got this sort of commitment that they did a few things. They intentionally gathered to remember and to worship the risen Christ. And communion was a part of their life because Jesus gave it to the, to the gathered group of believers to do in remembrance of him, which means the thing that unites us with believers across the street, up and down our country, and across the nation and the world is that we celebrate this thing called communion, which God has given us and this unifying thing to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, that his death and his resurrection, and we celebrate that until he comes again. It's this incredible gift that we've been given that no matter what your denomination is and all those kind of pieces, we have these elements together. I've been different places all over the world and communion is one of those things that is just, although maybe celebrated differently, is still the unifying factor that we all worship the risen Christ. Right? And so they probably broke the bread, the loaf together, the, the single loaf of remembering and celebrating communion as a way of just saying, we are remembering what Jesus did. But then they also broke bread and they ate with glad and sincere hearts in each other's homes, which is another thing for us, right? Like they did this on a daily basis, it says in verse 46, that daily they committed themselves to that. And there's something we miss in our culture today about sharing meals, right? Because meals for us today are really just, it's a byproduct of an activity that we need to get to or get through. 
Uh, every round the corner is how fast. You know, have you ever been super annoyed by sitting in a restaurant when food doesn't come fast enough? Fast food is a, t- a phrase that we, as a Western culture, have coined. But if you go to other cultures, a lot of other cultures, meals are something that is a sacred part of sharing life, and they spend hours at times around tables. Latin America is a great example of that. Eastern Europe is a great example of that. The Middle East is a great example of that. They share life. They bring things to the table, and they share this common thing. And when you invite someone to eat in your home or with you, you're basically filleting open your life and saying, this is us, and you're welcome to be a part of it. It's a picture of hospitality. And so when they would not only break the loaf, the bread, they would open up their homes on a daily basis, and they'd say, be a part of our life. You know, and for us, in our Western culture, and I don't know how you are, but we have people over in our homes, but it's a very guarded experience, right? Like, we race around like crazy to make sure that we clean everything up, get it all put in its perfect places, light as many candles as there possibly are, right, to cover up whatever else is going on. And we clean everything up, and we make something that we think is going to be really great, that they're going to be really impressed with, not macaroni and cut up hot dogs, which is what we normally do, you know, or something like that. But we do this whole thing, this whole production, and then we have people over, and then it starts getting to that time where you're like, how do we get them to leave, right? Like, we've had our time, you've eaten, it's kind of time to hustle on out the door. And it's a deal, and we're like, oh man, now we're tired, and we clean up, and we do the dishes. That was really fun, glad we did it. We'll do it again maybe next month. That's how most of us treat guests and company and other people. Uh, Very seldom is our life treated like a daily open door, come eat, spend time, right? It's frightful for a lot of us. But they devote themselves to the breaking of the bread, to the fellowship, to the apostles' teaching. And then the fourth thing that says they devoted themselves to prayer. So their gathered time together was a commitment to say, we're going to seek the Lord. We talk a lot in here about prayer, but I won't get into it too much. But the idea is that they just gather together with this deep intentionality to say, we're going to commit ourselves to hearing the teaching of the Lord. We're going to gather together and we're going to do the things that we remember that Christ taught us to do. We're going to break bread. And not only that, we're going to get involved in each other's homes and we're just going to spend time out of necessity and out of desire together. We're going to devote ourselves to prayer. And to the fellowship that that means, right? And so I started thinking about this as I was kind of unpacking the stuff that we're going to be teaching through this weekend. I just thought, man, what am I really devoted to? Like truly. Because the idea of devotion is, is an interesting word, right? It's like this deep sort of passionate commitment to something. And I've been devoted to things, right? I've been devoted to watching Netflix series, uh, devoted to Jack Ryan for a while. I watched that one. That was fantastic, waiting for the second season to come out. I got pretty devoted to that. I get on kicks for things, and I get devoted to that, right? Like, I'll do this for a few weeks and get real excited about it, and it'll sort of fade away. And, but I started thinking about it when it really comes to, the, to church, to community, to the Lord. What am I really devoted to? And the truth is, I'm super devoted to convenience, um, I'm just really devoted to things that are comfortable and convenient. I love them when they work in my system. But I'm not really devoted to those things. And that even includes my prayer life. It includes my time studying the Word. Like, I'm not devoted to them outside of their convenience places in my life. And I think most of us, if we're totally honest, probably live in that same place. Like, we're devoted to them as long as they're comfortable and convenient. But when it becomes inconvenient, it's things that are like, oh, I don't have time, I don't have this, I'm not sure I can do that. Or weeks go by and we don't really have a prayer life anymore. Like, we kind of tell what people would pray for them, but we really don't. We definitely wouldn't define our prayer life as a devoted thing, right? Like, this passionate commitment to. 
So if you look at these things and you see they're devoted to them, would you be able to describe your own life as passionately committed to the teaching of God's Word? Passionately committed to the fellowship, the sharing of life with other believers? Passionately committed to the breaking of bread, things that Jesus gave us, and the call to do that with other people? Passionately committed to it. And passionately committed to prayer, not just individually, but prayers with people. Well, if we're totally transparent, I would probably say there's about 1% of us in here that would say, yes, that is me. I'm passionately devoted to those things. And most of us would long to, long for those things. But we talked about this weekend, and what I'm going to unpack just quickly for us this morning, is that Acts 2 presents a real dilemma for a lot of us. Uh, and it's got to present a real problem. Uh, because we love the idea of this, but we're also really petrified of this. Because it actually goes on to say that not only did they do these things, but they shared their stuff. Right? They took their possessions and they sold them and they gave them at times so that no one had needs. And in chapter 4 you'll see <clears throat> that at time to time people would go and sell a whole piece of land. And they would bring it to the apostles and they would say, hey, make sure that nobody has any needs. Here's the cash from that sale. And they would trust the apostles just to make sure that there were no needs among the community. Now this kind of lifestyle presents a real problem for a lot of us. And presents a lot of fears. And I kind of think that they're wrapped up in two main areas. Um, And the first is this, that I don't want to, I don't know how, or I don't have time to truly open my life to other people. So the first dilemma that I think Acts presents, or this Acts 2 life, community life presents, is I don't really want that. I don't really know how to. And I'm not really sure I have time at all for opening my life to other people. Now, we spent a big chunk of time this week in kind of unpacking what that means, and, and, and I, I'm guessing you probably get it. I won't spend a ton of time here this morning doing it, but, but I really live in that category. There are times in my life where I just really don't want to. I don't want to have my life totally open and vulnerable for the world to see. I live in a lot of fear. I have a lot of anxiety. There's a lot of times I just want to go, God, I don't, I don't see you. And so I'm wrestling even with my own trust issues. And there are times where I don't want people to see behind the curtain because I'm super protective of that. So there's part of me that says, when I think about Acts 2 being devoted to, to people and to the breaking of bread, having their homes and fellowship and prayers, like there are times where I don't even really want to do that. There are times where I'm afraid to even be honest before the Lord myself. So there's a part of our hearts that sort of kind of clustered off over here that says, I don't really want to. And we know that and we hate it about us, but it's true. The other part of us says, okay, I know I need it and I want it, but I don't really know how. Like, I mean, do we just join a life group and that like magically happens? Or like, do we have to ask our neighbors over? And what about that one couple that's in our life group that we really just don't want to be around because they're weird? Like, I don't really know how, right? Like, and so we wrestle with that. Like, even if I did, like, you know, do we just kind of sit down in this group of people and be like, well, our marriage sucks. Uh, who, anybody else? I mean, like, how do we do this thing? And so then we're like, I don't want to be the first. And then it's like, ah, oh, it's a whole thing. And then for a lot of us, we use this overarching excuse of time, which is true. It's true, but it's an excuse, right? Which is, I don't have time. They met together every day, every single day. Who's got that? Right, like I literally am trying to think through the last time we had a day or an evening where it wasn't somebody doing something that we had to be at. Right, I've got a 17-year-old senior and a 14-year-old eighth grader, and they are crazily engaged in all kinds of things. And so, just the idea of going, when are we going to have people even in our home more than once or twice a month at most? 
much less have time to truly give ourselves. And if we have a day, do I want to spend that day doing that or that night doing that, or do I just want to guard our time? And so we use that blanket of time as an excuse to cover a lot of these other things because we just don't have it. But as we know with time, right, you create time for the things that you love. Time is one of those things that we use as an excuse only because we want to use the time on things that we either enjoy or that we want. But when we don't want to and we don't know how to, then time becomes a crazy barrier. And rightly so. I don't have time. Well, if the things that are important to God should matter to us as followers of Christ, then time should never be a barrier if our desire is to do the things that God desires. So we create time for the things that matter. If you want a relationship to last, if you want your marriage to be healthy, you create time for those things. If you want your kids, as you grow, to know you and for you to know them, then you create time for them, right? You create space. But that's our first dilemma, is that we live in this place of just kind of, I just want it all to come to me. But the second dilemma is equally as kind of frustrating for a lot of us, myself included. And the second one is, I don't really want to loosen my grip on my world and my stuff, This is another big dilemma because this whole idea in Acts about sharing resources is really petrifying, right? So the idea that they had everything, the believers were together and they had everything in common and they sold possessions and goods and they gave to anyone as he had need. Now surely that doesn't mean me. Because as a Western culture, we are driven by our desire to want stuff. I mean, we just are. Even if you're sitting here thinking, no, it's probably not me. The truth is, it is you. We are sold this sort of cycle, right? We're driven by a cycle that says, you should want this. And we have commercials and all these things that are pushing us to want whatever that is, right? You can turn on the news and watch people camp out for iPhones or tickets to things or whatever. Or even if you look in your life and you're like, I don't need the best. Like, I just want something that works, right? We're always wanting something. I mean, my favorite time of year, I talk about this at Christmas time all the time, is those holiday Lexus commercials. They're amazing, right? Have you ever seen them? Like, there's this family, this incredible home, and it's snowing, and it's never cold, right? And there's a bow on a Lexus in the driveway, and the kids are great, and mom wears pajamas all day long. And they're gorgeous, and the whole family looks amazing, and their life is the one that I've always longed for. I can get that Lexus. I don't care about really that. I just want that life. Like, (laughs) sell me that. Because the idea is we are all driven to want what's more. But a lot of us will just go, I don't need a million dollars. I just need like part of that, right? I tell the Lord all the time, I'd be the best super rich person ever, (laughs) ever. I'd be giving money away like crazy, right? I tell him that all the time. But God knows my heart. It's like that scene, I don't know if you ever watched Seinfeld, when George Costanza was like, I should be a philanthropist. That'd be a great one because I would have money and people would owe me big time, right? And I'm like, that would be me. I would somehow turn this thing into me. Um, but the idea is that we're driven in this sort of cycle to want stuff, and then we're driven to acquire that stuff. So once we decide that we want something, we start figuring out how we're going to acquire it. It doesn't just have to be material. Sometimes it's, this is our financial goal, or this is what we're going to try and save for. And so what are we going to do to acquire it? We're going to use envelopes, we're going to do these kind of things, whatever that system is. We're going to go out and try and figure out a way to get it. So we need a new car, whatever it is. We're going to try to acquire it. So the system is we're driven to want it, we're driven to acquire it, we're driven to accumulate it at that point in time. So once we get it, we have a real hard time letting go of it. We want to hold on to it. In our culture, in our Western culture, we have monster homes compared to the rest of the world. If you've ever been anywhere in the developing world or even anywhere, 
even in kind of other civilized cultures, we have monster homes, right? And our monster homes are not big enough to hold all of our stuff. So we have attics that hold our things. We have garages that hold the things that our attics won't hold or vice versa. And when those things get too full, what do we do? We go down the street and we rent a storage unit to hold the things, the stuff that we've accumulated that doesn't fit in our homes or our attics or our garage that we still can't let go of because we have this deep desire to accumulate things. A lot that Matthew chapter 6 says about accumulating things. And then after that, we're driven by our desire to love those things. So we're driven by our desire to want them and to acquire them and to accumulate them and then to love them. I have a drawer in my office at home that is full of old iPods, iTouches, phones, things. I have no idea why. None of it's worth anything. But I can't get myself to throw it away for some ridiculous reason. I can't even sell it, right? They're all cracked screen stuff. It's just in there. In case one day I'm going to assemble a robot army. I've got all the pieces. But we, we, we love our stuff. Like if I were to go into your home and take out all your TVs or iPods, and or iPods, I, I, uh, I, you know, computers or iPhones or whatever, and replace them with old style TVs that I grew up with, like a one that didn't have a remote, or our first TV had a remote on a cord, it had nine channels. You could only be like six feet of the thing. But rabbit ears and whatever, you had four channels. Would your family not die? Like mine would die. They would be like, what is happening in our life? Like they, we love our stuff, we love our systems, we love the way it is, and we can't think about life without those things. And so when we look at this and we say that they, had, they didn't consider anything theirs, they shared all they had, and at times they sold their stuff and gave it to the community, that's a real problem for most of us. I've been doing full-time ministry now for 25 years. You know how many times somebody has ever sold something and brought it to the church and said, hey, do what you will with this. Let's have no needy people. It's never Never. We're all petrified that God is trying to pry open our hands and take what is rightfully ours. And we have this incredible tension with the Lord because we say we trust him, yet we won't release control or our grip on our stuff, on our finances. And it's not only that, it's even on our world. And control's a funny thing, right? It's an illusion, doesn't even exist. But we still will wrestle with the Lord with it. And, you know, if you're sitting out here going, that's not me, man. I'm not really driven by stuff. Well, you're, the truth is you're probably driven by your control of stuff. It's just hard. And it's certainly this idea of going, do we really need to share all these things? But there's one revolutionary thought that I've, every time we talk about money or every time we talk about stuff, I, I say it over and over again because it's such a revolutionary idea that if we could truly grab it, it would change our lives. And that's this principle, that if we could come to the truth, the understanding that my life and my stuff belong to the Lord then it would change everything. Because if it's no longer mine, right, and if I no longer see it as mine, then it changes the way that I think about it, right? So if Zach sitting in the back there goes and goes, hey, Trip, I've got $1,000. I want to give it to you. Give my $1,000 away to anybody that needs it. Do you know how much fun I would have giving away Zach's $1,000? But if you were to say, Trip, give $1,000 away, you know how hard that would be for me to like give it away? Because it's mine. And I know what's behind it, how much there isn't left. And I know all the ways that it doesn't work. And so I would very strategically over several months figure out ways to slowly dole it out if I had to. And if not, it would be this painstaking process. So if we see our things in our life as not mine, 
But they actually belong to the Lord because all good and perfect gifts are from Him. And everything that we have belongs to Him. Then our families, our children, our stuff, our things, it all belongs to the Lord. Then it's a question of stewardship. God, I get to give away the things that you've given me to give away. Which means I get to release my kids and my wife to trust you. I get to believe that you are going to be protectors and guardians of their hearts and souls. God, I get to give the resources that you have given me away that when you press on my heart, I want to joyfully release what is already yours for you to do your things. But we see things as mine. And I know why my, my car, my house, my stuff, my whatever, my, my, my. And as long as we hang that word my on everything, we are going to fight with the Lord. So this Acts 2 thing is a real mess for a lot of us. Because we have this real tension about sharing our lives openly with people and about loosening our grip on our world. Now, I would love to tell you this weekend we solved it all. It was, we came up with a couple of great answers and we all quit and didn't have any of those issues. But it's not true. Um, I have a ton of those issues. But I want to fight them with everything I ha- have with every breath at every moment of my life. I want to be at constant war over the part of me that just wants to be fearfully secluded inside myself part of me that wants to kind of sequester those things that I don't want other people to see. I want to fight that and say, God, I want my life to be open. I want to trust you. I want people in there that will edify and convict and help and strengthen my marriage and my children and my life. God, I want people that i part of the community of God that feeds into my soul. And I want to fight my desire to not do that all the time. And the same thing, God, I want to fight my fears and anxieties about my own financial life or my own thoughts on material things or my just desires to, and never being content. I want to fight that with everything that I have. I want to believe that this stuff not only belongs to you, but that you can do with it what you will, including my life and my job and my career. That, no, that's mine. Like, if you want to move me on, I trust you. Like, I'm yours. My life, everything about it is yours. Like, I'm at your disposal. Let me be a great steward of those things. And if we begin to really anchor ourselves to that principle, it'll change everything. So our challenge as a community, as we think about this, is how do we push ourselves? This wasn't a perfect community, but how do we push ourselves to replicate its principles? How do we push ourselves to a place where we're truly known in the community that we worship with? How do we push ourselves to truly release control and become so ridiculously biblically generous that it just glorifies the Lord. This is the community I want to be a part of. It's a community I'm petrified of, but it's a community I want to be a part of. So as a, as a group and gather of believers, these become our anchor points. And we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, right, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, breaking of the bread and the bread. We devote ourselves to prayer and to sharing resources in life that we decide that our things don't belong to us, they belong to the Lord, and therefore what he will do, he will do. And we will find great joy in it. And in the process, I'm going to do everything I can to open my life to people and just say, this is authentically who I am. And God will revolutionize not only the community, but as we see at the end, and daily God added to their number and gave them favor with the people. What that means is as they did this, God used that to change the world. People came to know Christ because of how the community lived. He blessed them and added their number, and he gave them favor with the people that were hostile to them. Why? Because they lived lives that were relationally engaged in each other and open to the movement of the Lord. So if we want to see the people around us come to know Christ, it begins with how the community lives within the context of itself. 
And God will use that as a tool to change the world. So we invite our worship team to come back up. Let's just pray through that and just ask God to really change the way that we think about what life looks like, about our own material thoughts and the way that we even live. Let's pray together. God, I love the fact that this is one of the great tools that you use to change the world, that daily you added to their number and you gave them favor with the people that were kind of treating them with hostility. And Lord, I confess, this stuff is hard. But it doesn't mean we don't, we're not called to it. It doesn't mean we don't engage it. It's just hard. A lot of us want to live protected lives. We want to live lives that we control. We want to live lives that we understand. We want to have answers to questions. We want to be able to explain them away. But that's not really how you work all the time. Sometimes you just do things and we have to trust you. Sometimes you call us to things that are really hard. Like I'm going to live in an open community and be honest about my struggles. Or God, I'm going to quit being unhappy. And I'm going to fight for contentment in my soul. And I'm going to fight to trust that you will protect me and provide for me. And God, I want to be biblically generous to the core just in a way that says, Lord, all this is yours. I don't have to be fearful of it leaving. It's yours. It belongs to you. You get it. All of it. And then as a community, we might say to each other, let's devote ourselves to the teaching of God's word. First and foremost, not the tingling of our own ears, the entertainment of our hearts, but deeply committed to the teaching of the word of God. To the deep sharing of life Koinonia, part of me that just says I want to exist to be known and to know people. To the breaking of bread, not just here in our community, but in my home. I want my home to be a place where people see Jesus. You gave me a house, you gave me a place, Lord, and we want to open it up. Neighbors, co-workers, church, whoever, like, let us just share food, share life. And let us be devoted to prayer. Not like a prayer that says, oh, I've got a coworker that's doing this, but the real prayers of our hearts that are saying, I'm afraid, I'm desperate, I'm fearful, I'm needy. The part of us that comes clean with each other and just says, God, strengthen us. And be devoted to those things, passionately committed. Fighting back the fears that come that are from the enemy. Say, so you can't do it. Don't do it. Lies. You would not call us to something you would not empower us to do. So, God, we trust you. We believe you. And we commit our hearts to you. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship this morning, I pray that you would rally those things in us, empower us to be a people that fell in love with what it meant to be the people of God. And so, God, hear our cry in our heart. For you give us reason to wake in the morning, reason to sing, reason to dance, reason to love. And so, God, we close our time by praising you, the one and only God, the King of our hearts and souls, provider of all.